Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are in our series on the imprecatory Psalms, and here the team will be discussing Psalms 109 and 137. We hope that you enjoyed this episode, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Trevor Lawrence, and Jeff Myers discussing imprecatory psalms. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and Trevor Lawrence. Uh, One of our regulars, James B. John, is unable to be with us today, so we'll have a uh, somewhat truncated team. But uh, we're looking forward to this podcast. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background, making sure everything gets recorded and preserved and edited and sent off to you, uh, our audience. We are in the middle of a short series on imprecatory psalms. We've looked at the psalm categories of psalms in general in one of our first episodes. And we talked about curses and imprecations in the Bible and how they fit into the overall biblical picture of things. And... uh, how they're used in scripture. And last time we started uh, looking at specific imprecatory psalms. We looked at Psalm 58 and Psalm 83, and our intention was to cover a couple additional psalms, but we spent so much time on those two psalms that we we ran out of our uh, ran out of our allotted recording time, and we decided to put additional psalms off till another episode. That, that so that's what we're covering today. We're going to be covering Psalm 109 and uh, Psalm 137 today. And as as I did, and as I warned the rest of the crew here, uh, I'm going to start out by singing a portion of Psalm 109. I won't sing the whole thing, but I'll sing the imprecatory portion that begins in uh, verse 5. They say, appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer be counted as sin. Let his days be few. And let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife become a widow. Let his children wander to beg their bread. Let them seek it in desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder the fruit of his toil. Let there be no one to keep faith with him, or have compassion on his fatherless children. Let his line soon come to an end and his name be blotted out in the next generation. Let the wickedness of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and no sin of his mother be blotted out. Let their sin be always before the Lord, that he may root out their name from the earth. Because he was not minded to keep faith, but persecuted the poor and needy, and sought to kill the brokenhearted. He loved cursing, and it came to him, He took no delight in blessing, and it was far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as with a garment. It seeped into his body like water and into his bones like oil. Let it be to him like the cloak which he wraps around him and like the belt that he wears continually. That's ending at verse 18. So there are are a couple things that make this uh, Psalm 109 a particularly difficult psalm to deal with. One of them has to do with the intensity of the curses. Uh, The curses are uh, pronounced not only against the persecutor, but they're pronounced against his children and against his parents. 
uh, and against every dimension of his life. It's a it's the most comprehensive curse that we have in an imprecatory psalm, most comprehensive curse we have in the Bible. The other thing that presents a difficulty is the suggestion that many make that the section that I sang, going from about verse uh, 6 to verse uh, 18 or so, or a little bit longer perhaps, uh, is understood as a quotation from the persecutor. Uh, David isn't pronouncing a curse, but he's summarizing or uh, he's repeating the curses that have been pronounced against him. And so the question arises whether this is even uh, a, an imprecation from David against someone else, or if it's a uh, it's understood as a as a quotation of the of the curses of the of the persecutor. So those are the those are two of the difficulties that come up in this particular imprecatory psalm. Any any thoughts on the latter question about the quotation? One thing to bear in mind is that verse eight is quoted in the New Testament in Acts chapter one as a statement of David. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. We're not yet to the New Testament use of these Psalms, but uh, that pretty much that interpretation that this is the quotation of an accuser pretty much uh, contradicts the divine interpretation that's given in Acts 120. Those who advocate this quotation hypothesis will often uh, draw attention to the shift from plural pronouns to the singular. Uh, in the imprecatory part, we we have verses one through five, which are plural, my enemies, my accusers, six through 19, then uh, is an imprecatory prayer against a, a singular individual. And then we move back into the plural again. Um, but I think it's quite easy to overestimate that particular piece of evidence, not least because there are other imprecatory psalms, like Psalm 7, for instance, that shift rather fluidly from the plural to the singular and back again in context where it's very clear that the psalmist is imprecating against his enemies the entire time. Also, I think it's important that if uh, an interpreter's um, motivation is to lessen the offense of this psalm, uh, get 6 through 19 out of David's mouth so that it is less of a problem, we have to remember that verse 20 uh, follows up and says, may this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. So even if the interpreter reads 6 through 19 as a quotation of the enemy's curses against David, verse 20 turns it back around upon the accusers and says, may this be their reward from the Lord. Right. So the, the question about the severity of the imprecation is still, because of verse 20, it's still there because David is asking the Lord to turn those words against him, if it in fact is a quotation. I think that your, uh, Alistair and Jeff, your point about the uh, quotation in the New Testament is is uh, important. And that's, of course, in the context of selecting a new apostle to replace Judas, let his days be few, let another take his office. They, Peter quotes in Acts 1 as a justification for replacing Judas with a different, uh, with another witness uh, who will fill out the the total number of twelve uh, apostles. So yeah, I think that um, for those reasons, the the quotation thesis doesn't seem to have much weight. And I think my guess is that the uh, part of the motivation is to try to soften up the the curse, uh, but it that doesn't really that doesn't really work as Trevor has explained because of verse twenty. 
uh, Trevor, in the in our last episode, you you uh, pointed to kind of Genesis three dimensions and the different imprecatory psalms that they're they're about crushing the serpent's head, and that's the David is the is the seed of the woman pointing to the final seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. Do you see? Are you do you see evidence of the same kind of paradigm in the background of this of this psalm? Yes, it is not as explicit. I, I think it's quite easy to pull out, to excise particular psalms and to only want to look at them as individual compositions and, and to say that the theology and the framing of particular characters has to occur in each discrete psalm in order to be valid. Uh, I think uh, the Genesis 3 uh, shattering of serpent skulls by a royal priestly son of God messianic figure is it runs throughout the Psalter and it shades Psalm 109 as well. It's interesting that Psalm 109 occurs in between Psalm 108 and 110. Uh, this is part of a, a little Davidic triad of Psalms. Uh, interestingly, Psalm 108 uh, discusses um, God casting his shoe upon Edom, and uh, it concludes with. Uh, it is he, God, who will tread down our foes. Uh, then we have Psalm 109, which is an imprecation against the personal enemies of the Davidic king, which moves into Psalm 110, which promises that uh, a scion from the line of David is going to crush uh, the heads of his enemies. His enemies are going to come under his feet like a footstool. Uh, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will shatter either chiefs or the head over the wide earth. Uh, and so it seems that Psalm 109 is framed between psalms that incorporate this enemy-crushing, foot-stomping imagery uh, to, to give us a sense of, of who it is David is and how we ought to understand the enemies who are nipping at his heels in Psalm 109. On the move from the plural to the singular. It's something that we find elsewhere in the Psalms, in places like Psalm 7. And it might be a more general statement being made about the enemies, and then a specific curse on each and every one um, in the verses that follow in verses 6 to 19. Another thing to notice about these verses is that what is the wrongdoer being cursed for? Um, things like oppressing, the harassing the of the oppressed and the needy, killing the disheartened, and not bothering to show kindness. This does not seem like the sort of statement that we would expect um, the wicked to make about David, so much as David to make about the wicked. Right. That's that's a good point, Alistair. It also then kind of puts into context some of the fierceness, or maybe the extent of the request made here with regard to the children of this man. Um, so it's kind of a lex talionis. Uh, the psalmist is asking that justice be done, but that his persecutors suffer in the way that they have made others suffer. So, uh, I mean, that, that doesn't completely dampen the, the uh, I don't know, the shock of these requests, but um, uh, it's, it, it might help to us to understand that, well, his father and mother uh, encouraged this taught him this, led him in this way, and his children are following on. I mean, I, that, that's one of the only ways, and you guys might help me on this, is one of the only ways that I see of getting around the, the you know, Ezekiel 18 um, kind of principles that uh, 
uh, that God doesn't punish children for their father's sins. Uh, the liability of the fathers is on their own heads. Children then suffer. If they follow in the footsteps of their father, then their liability is uh, as a result of their own rebellion. Yeah. I agree with that in general, though. I think that there's a perhaps a, a Passover motif here because the, the Lex Talionis is the basis of the Passover event. Uh, Pharaoh has been seizing and destroying the sons of Yahweh, the son of Yahweh that is Israel. And so Yahweh takes his son. And uh, David is the embodiment of that son. He's, he's, the, he's Israel in, in, in persona. And so an attack on him is an attack on Yahweh's son. And so the request is a, is a symmetry that the Lord would take the sons of the attackers. So I think that there, that Passover thing may, uh, may modify the way that Ezekiel is, um, Ezekiel plays into this. I'd say also in Ezekiel, there may be a more specific point being made. Um, the point being that there are a series of kings. Um, Josiah is the good king. Then there's Jehoiakim, the bad king, and then there's um, Jehoiakim, who's the third in the line. And it's very easy for people who are suffering this national catastrophe of being brought into Babylon to blame the former generations we're suffering on account of their sins. And it seems to me that a far more specific point is being made in Ezekiel. It's not just a generic statement about the, the nature of God's justice. It's about not being able to palm off responsibility for the exile to some former generation. Yeah, good point. Yes, that's an interesting point that in verse 6, uh, we have David uh, asking that a wicked man be appointed against his enemy, that a Satan stand at his right hand. Uh, this seems to uh, be part of the broader Lex Talionis uh, that is sort of governing the progression of curses in 6 through 19. Uh, David asks for a Satan, an accuser, to stand against one who acts as an accuser uh, to him. The verb uh, Satan uh, is used later to describe uh, those who are falsely accusing David. Uh, so here we have a sort of proportionate retribution coming once again. Now, I think it's interesting uh, to read these curses in not only in light of the Lex Talionis, but in light of a specific instantiation of the Lex Talionis in Deuteronomy 19. There, in the case of a false witness, the Lex Talionis is applied so that legally uh, Israel is to do to the false witness as he meant to do to his brother. And in verses 6 to 19, we have a systematic uh, movement of talionic imprecation that is directed against the enemy. And, and in fact, the psalm shows really meticulous care to legitimate each of the uh, prescribed judgments in light of what the enemy himself has done. So, for example, we have a, a wicked foe for the wicked foe. We have an accuser for the one who accuses. We have curses befalling the one who curses, a void of kindness for the one who is himself devoid of kindness. We have poverty for the one who pursued the poor. We have imprecations of death for him who sought the death of others. 
I also think it's interesting to see that in Deuteronomy 19, uh, this uh, talionic judgment of false witnesses is explicitly connected to purging evil from Israel's midst. Uh, this legislation is part of Israel's commission to guard sacred space, to guard God's temple kingdom uh, from the corruption and infiltration of unholiness and covenant breaking. And so if we want to connect this back to uh, Genesis 3.15 uh, and offer that paradigm that we've used for reading some of the other imprecatory psalms, here we have David, the royal priestly son of God, praying for the talionic purging of evil from Israel's midst. He is subduing the enemy in prayer. He is guarding the holiness of the temple kingdom in prayer by asking for the cutting off and the cursing uh, of the one who is corrupting Israel's life and attacking Israel's representative head. We feel the tension with the statements about loving your enemies, blessing and not cursing, and these sorts of things elsewhere in Scripture when we read the imprecatory Psalms. But yet something of that tension is felt within the Psalm itself. And to understand the Psalm, you need to feel the force of the um, way that David is not a man given to cursing. In verses 3 to 5, he talks about the way that he's been attacked without cause. They've encircled him with words of hate, whereas he has been acting in love towards them. Um, he's given himself to prayer. He's done good, and he's been rewarded with evil and hatred for his love. And then later on, the judgment upon the wicked person who's being cursed is because of his delight in cursing, his refusal to delight in blessing and the way that cursing was second nature to him, something that he clothed himself with. And often we have that sense, well, um, the New Testament teaches that we should bless and not curse. And that's exactly how David describes his posture here. And the posture of the wicked is in the very starkest contrast to that. He's given himself to cursing. And by virtue of the juxtaposition, it would seem that this use of imprecation is very different from the person who's just given to cursing and to the sort of practice that's ruled out by the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a great point, Elster. And given what Trevor has said about the extent of the Lex Talionis um, request for retribution, and you mentioned a number of things here, uh, Trevor, I wonder then if this prayer about the children wandering and begging and seeking food, um, if that also is about what he has done to others, um, what the, the, the kind of evil and the kind of um, uh, things that he's perpetrated against uh, other children would come back on his children, and possibly the same also in verse 14 with um, the way his father and mother uh, have been participants in his evil. Now, uh, they also are going to be uh, part of this uh, request for judgment, so that this Lex Talionis, this eye for an eye theme here, might encompass all of these things which we otherwise might think is just uh, yeah, you know, personal retribution, uh, maybe even something overly exaggerated on a part of 
David's part. That's possible. I, I think it's also helpful to think about this in terms of uh, the cutting off of this enemy and his line, his seed, from the life of the covenant community. Mm. Uh, so for his children to be fatherless and his wife a widow is simply another way of saying that the enemy himself, as the head of the family, is to be judged. And that, of mm. course, brings everyone in relation to him into the orbit of that judgment. For his children to wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit, what we have is a vision of a family who presumably, as we've mentioned already, are following in the footsteps of their head, uh, the, the father, um, the leader of their home. We have a, a vision of them uh, having to survive apart from the life-sustaining uh, hesed, the covenant faithfulness of the covenant community. Uh, we've got a vision of a family who has given themselves to evil, who has followed in the footsteps of evil, who, whose life and, and sustenance are no longer being subsidized uh, by God's people, uh, but they are instead to be cut off and to, in a sense, feel the ramifications of the covenant-breaking unfaithfulness that they have engaged in, which is something that Psalm 109 emphasizes over and over again. Mm -hmm. They have failed to show chesed. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so God, in his chesed, must judge them uh, proportionately. There's also a sense of fittingness to the fact that, whereas in verse 31, the Lord is the one who stands at the right hand of the needy one, Mm -hmm. It is the accuser, the Satan, that stands at the right hand of the wicked man. He's given himself to a particular way of life, and that comes back upon his head. He's not just suffering the punishment that comes from God outside of himself. Rather, the very logic of the way of life that he has given himself to is one that is turning back upon him. He's reaping the harvest that he's sown. And maybe a way to state what you guys have just said more simply, this, this way of praying is actually a request for deliverance for God's people, um, that everyone involved with this accuser, with this enemy, be, as Trevor said, cut off, and, the, and those who he has oppressed be released, or at least future uh, possibilities be, uh, <clears throat> be cut off from ever happening, so that... Uh, praying for God to exercise judgment on wicked oppressors is actually, on the one hand, a prayer that they be punished and fittingly for what they've done, but also that everyone else would be uh, allowed the freedom to be prosperous and have peace and not have to deal with these people. It's also interesting to see uh, some connections with uh, Psalm 58 and 83 that we looked at in past uh, a past episode. There, the psalmist frames his imprecation as ultimately a plea for God's glory, uh, a plea that the enemies too would come to know that God himself is God. Psalm 58, uh, that uh, the world would know that surely there is a judge who reigns. Here we have uh, the imprecatory please, framed as a request for God's name to be exalted, magnified, seen for the beauty that it really is. 
And in verse 27, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Uh, The psalmist is asking that the enemies would be brought to a place where they recognize that the justice that befalls them is the work of the God who judges the earth. Interestingly also, uh, the psalm ends on a high note. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. God stands at the right hand of the needy one, as Alistair mentioned. But of course, we immediately move into Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, if we try to work out the, the, the spatial positioning of God who stands at the right hand of the needy one, but tells uh, the Lord to sit at my right hand in Psalm 110, we get a little backwards. But I think that there is an intentional connection in the organization of this psalm. The psalmist is crying out. He is giving thanks ultimately because God will be faithful to his covenant promises because he is the God of chesed to David and to Israel. He is at the right hand of the needy one. And we immediately move into messianic expectation and celebration because the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I bring your enemies and the enemies of all Israel under your feet so that the temple kingdom of God may prosper and flourish in shalom as it has been intended to do. That messianic connection, Trevor, is interesting. It also causes us to think back to the two doorway psalms uh, that the book of Psalms begins with, Psalms 1 and 2, and everything here is consistent, both in Psalm 109 and 110, with those two psalms, where in Psalm 1, uh, I think verse 6, the Lord Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Uh, and then in Psalm 2, uh, the request is to break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, kiss the sun. Uh, his wrath is kindled if you don't. And so um, Psalms like this fit with that. I mean, it, it, it flows out of the w- basic worldview that's set up for us in Psalms 1 and 2. Well, let's move on to Psalm 137. And um, again, um, I will sing it just to uh, give people a, uh, give our listening audience, well, I don't know what I'm going to give them, but uh, certainly not pleasure, (laughs) but but at least I'll give them something. This is, again, Psalm 137. This is from the Book of Common Worship Psalter. That's what I was singing from when I sang Psalm 109 as well. By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. As for our lyres, we hung them up on the willows that grow in that land. For there our captors asked for a song, our tormentors called for mirth. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you. If I set not Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the people of Edom the day of Jerusalem. How they said, down with it, down with it, even to the ground. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. 
Happy the one who repays you for all you have done to us. You who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Of course, the, uh, the alarming part of that psalm is right at the end. You have kind of this wistful beginning while the waters of Babylon, Israel in exile, and their, and their uh, captors are taunting them, telling them to sing the songs of Zion. Uh, but then there are the curses against Edom. Uh, remember, O Lord, against the people of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. And then uh, the final prayer about the uh, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Babylon, rather, and the prayer that the little ones would be dashed against the rock. Those are the imprecatory portions of this psalm. But uh, part of, I think probably the one of the startling things about the psalm is the contrast between the tone of the opening verses and the uh, much harsher tone of the final verses of the psalm. It seems to be connected to the larger collection of the Songs of Ascents. Um, there are um, three psalms that follow those, and this is one of, of those that is appended to the end of that series. And there's a parody of the, those Songs of Ascent um, with the request that they would sing one of the Songs of Zion, even when they're far away, and that song will just be bitter for them. Um, and so it's very much a, a psalm of two cities between Babylon and Jerusalem and connected to that memory, which is now painful of ascending to Zion and the hope that Babylon would be experience a descent. Many years, many years ago, Jim Jordan suggested an alternative reading of the final, of the final verses. Uh, just want to get your thoughts about this. Uh, he he didn't take the verses eight and nine as a curse against Babylon, but rather as um, a, a prayer for the blessing of Babylon in a sense. And his his point he made several points to set this up. One was that the uh, command or the admonition from Jeremiah and other prophets is to bless the city of Babylon to pursue the peace of the city rather than to undermine it. And because the Lord placed people like Daniel and his friends and others in positions of authority, at least initially within Babylon. And Babylon treated Israel with some sympathy. And, and uh, uh, so, and, and the, the admonition is to is not to undermine, but to pursue the peace of Babylon. And then the other thing he pointed out is that the the final prayer is not to dash the little ones against the rocks, as if you're casting them down and destroying them, but against the rock. And he pointed out the regular use of that title as a name for Yahweh as a, or as a description of Yahweh. Yahweh is our rock. The Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 repeats that designation a number of times. And it's used elsewhere in the Psalter that the Lord is our rock. The Lord is our rock and our deliverer. He's, he is a rock and high tower. That kind of language is uh, found elsewhere in the Psalter. And so the final prayer is not a prayer for the destruction of Babylon, but rather that a prayer that their, their little ones would be dashed against the rock or dashed into the rock that is the rock of Israel, that is Yahweh. I guess you could, you could uh, if you wanted to really tease this out, you could say that this isn't a psalm, the final verses aren't a psalm of cursing, but rather a prayer for infant baptism for the, the infants <laughs> of, uh, of Babylon. You wanted to push it. What, what do you all think about that, um, that take on the psalm? I'm not persuaded. I think that 
we have very strong declarations of expected judgment against Babylon at the very end of the book of Jeremiah. In Isaiah 47, for instance, we have um, the love of the daughter of Babylon that has the love, lover of pleasures. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come upon you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. It seems that the prayer in part here is that the prophecies that have been declared concerning Babylon would indeed come to pass. And so while I think that prophecies can be fulfilled in surprising ways, where there is a positive fulfillment of something that seems like a very negative prophecy, and so I think it's open to being fulfilled in a secondary way in that way if they do repent um i think the primary meaning is that the more literal shocking meaning that we'd read at first glance yeah i isaiah 13 16 has an explicit prophecy that their infants be dashed to pieces before their eyes their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Uh, the other thing that works against that interpretation is just the flow from verses 8 to 9 in Psalm 137. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. So there again is this lex talianus, um, eye for an eye idea. And then immediately, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So this appears to be an eye for an eye. Uh, a just eye for an eye, because this is what they did to the children of Jerusalem. And so the psalmist says, this is what should happen to their children as well. But I do agree with um, uh, with Alistair that there's often this uh, surprising fulfillment. And I'm wondering, I think Jim at some point also referred to Luke 20, 17, where Jesus then quotes, I think it's Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, which uh, that proverbial kind of statement there, that dark saying, seems to indicate that one of two things can happen. Either you can be, um, you can be crushed, which would be a judgment, or you can be broken, which would be something of a conversion. Um, so I, I, I wonder if it's inappropriate for us to associate the end of Psalm 137 with Luke 20. I'm not sure that it is. And yet, no, that's all I'll say. <laughs> just to support the Lex Talionis point, uh, several times in Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah is lamenting what Babylon did to the little ones of Israel. Lamentations mm -hmm. 1.5, her little ones have gone away as captives. Yeah. Lamentations 2.11, when the little ones and infants languish in the streets, and a couple other passages. So that would that would support the Lex Talionis idea that what what Babylon has done to the little ones of, of Judah is now being done to the little ones of Babylon. One question I have is whether um, it is necessary to take the statement here as referring to infants in particular. Um, could it be a metaphorical related statement about the people within the city or the poor within the city um daughter of babylon is i mean it's not a literal daughter it's a way of speaking about a city and 
what are the children here? Should we just assume that they are the infants or might there be something more going on? Again, I think Isaiah thirteen sixteen becomes helpful. There it seems to be literal infants yeah. who are yeah. prophesied and literal wives who are ravished, as difficult as that is to, to even say aloud, uh, by opposing armies, which, which are the judgment of God. I think it's very interesting that in the movement of Isaiah 13 and 14, there are two sort of oracles against Babylon that seem to be providing a, a prophetic background for this specific plea. But nestled in the middle is a small promise of Israel's restoration. The definitive judgment of the wicked, the cutting off of Babylon's line, is tied to the expectation of Israel's glorious restoration into the land of God's dwelling, to be the covenant people of God who experience blessing in his presence. And I, I think it's helpful to read the longing and expectation here, not only as a sort of negative plea for judgment against Babylon, but as a positive plea for the concomitant restoration of Jerusalem, which is the psalmist's highest joy, which in the movement of God's promises is to follow after and accompany the, the smiting of the wicked. When Babylon's little ones are dashed against the rock, there is no further generation of the wicked to rise up and serve as an oppressive threat against the temple kingdom of God. I also think it's, it's interesting in verse 9 that we have a, a blessing upon he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. There's a very specific verb that's used there that only occurs one other time in the Psalter. That dashing or shattering is predicated of the Davidic anointed in Psalm 2.9 that Jeff pointed to earlier. He will shatter the nations. And here we have a sort of prospective blessing that is looking forward to the one who, the Davidic king, who will arise from the stump of Jesse and shatter the nations, Babylon, the serpent, and their seed. So we've got uh, Israel as a, a royal priestly people praying for the Davidic royal priest who will ultimately uh, come in the faithfulness of God to shatter the nations in accord with God's promises so that the temple kingdom really is in history on the soil of this earth uh, the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of blessing, and the temple of a holy God uh, that, that the Lord has been working toward throughout the entire story of his work with Israel. And I think that, that uh, point uh, justifies and supports Alistair's comment about uh, his citation of the end of Jeremiah, which is about the, judge, the passage about the judgment of Babylon. So he's talking about the restoration of Israel to the land and the restoration of Zion and Jerusalem. And that's preceded by the dashing and the destruction of Babylon by Persia and then the release of Persia. So there's a, that's a, that historical connection supports the idea that the, the final prayer is a prayer that Babylon would be judged so that uh, Israel could return to the land. I, w I wonder what you think about the role of Edom here, uh, verse 7. Uh, we don't think of 
uh, generally don't think of Edom as uh, the uh, the primary oppressor or the pri- primary enemy of Israel, certainly not during the exile. But the psalmist is not just praying for a retri- for retribution to Babylon, but also uh, that the Lord remember Edom. Isn't this a reference to how the Edomites took advantage of the situation when Jerusalem was being um, attacked by the Babylonians and the Edomites uh, did what? The Malachites. Uh, well, anyway, yeah, the, Mal- the Malachites did by, uh, by just by coming in and 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 um, uh, and 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 being a pre- and just taking the poor and just taking the property and all that. Kind of, I can't remember where that is. I didn't. I didn't write it down. It seems to be a more general theme with um, various Amalekites, Edomites, Idumeans, um taking advantage of situations when Israel yeah. is at its weakest. So when they're just going out of Egypt, um, they're attacked in the wilderness by the Amalekites. Later on, they try and cut off their tail, um, however we understand that. Then later on, you have attacks, for instance, by um, Haman the Agagite, um, you have the attacks upon Israel in the time of Saul, um, you have various other periods of Israel's history, for instance in AD 70 where the Edomites are significant players and it, it seems that Deuteronomy 25 speaks about this, about the way in which on the one hand it, within the context of the chapter it describes the actions of the um, brother who performed the leveret marriage so that his brother's name will not be blotted out. And at the point of his brother's greatest weakness, where it would seem that there is no one to stand up for him, his name is going to be blotted out because he's died with no one to his name, um, he steps in and he acts on his brother's behalf so that his name would not be blotted out. And at the end of that chapter, there's another statement concerning another brother, which is the line of Amalek related to um, the Edomites and particularly Esau. Um, and in that case, their name must be blotted out because at the point of Israel's greatest weakness, they pounced. So there's a direct juxtaposition of the person who stands up in the position of his brother's greatest weakness and acts on his behalf, which we can see in Aaron and Hur holding up the arms of Moses in the battle against Amalek. And on the other hand, Amalek, which seeks to pounce on the brother when he's weakest. Yeah, so you've got uh, two, two different kinds of enemies, as you're saying, Alistair. Uh, there's Edom, who is a close relative, a brother enemy, and Babylon, which is a foreigner enemy, a stranger enemy. And both of them are attacking uh, in different ways. That's a, as Jeff was saying, I think that's a, that is a common recurring theme, that uh, Israel is not just preyed on by outsiders, but often preyed on by those who are brother or cousin nations. If we read the end of Psalm 137 as uh, a plea for the advent of the Davidic king, then the, the imprecation against Edom actually connects with uh, earlier uh, prophetic oracles about uh, the star out of Jacob and scepter that shall arise out of Israel, particularly Balaam's oracle in Numbers 24. Uh, of this star and scepter, uh, Balaam announces, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. 
and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. There we've got uh, all of the pieces that are coming together in Psalm 137. A Davidic ruler who uh, dispossesses the nations, destroys the survivors of cities, uh, maintains Israel's security and peace in the land, guarding them from oppressive threat forevermore, exercising dominion over the land of Jacob, and judging Edom as well. We've got Pentateuchal roots uh, for the expectation of Edom's judgment, uh, even as uh, Edom's part in the Babylonian destruction, detailed by, for example, Obadiah, uh, provides uh, a nearer context and justification for their inclusion in the psalm. On the eschatological orientation of Psalm 137, I also think it's helpful to look at the placement of the psalm in relation to Psalms 138 to 145, which, as we've noted before, are the final Davidic collection uh, in the Psalter. Psalm 137 ends, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes or shatters them against the rock. And immediately we come to Psalm 138, a psalm of David. And here, 138 to 145 progress from David's suffering to his imprecation against serpents. And then finally, in 144 and 145, to an Edenic restoration, a fruitfulness that rivals the descriptions of the Garden of Eden. When in uh, Psalm 145, verse 20, David explicitly says that all the wicked God will destroy. And so 137 points us to the Davidic Messiah who shatters the nations and the enemy threats of Israel. And then 138 to 135 retrace a a Davidic story that leads up to the Edenic restoration of God's temple kingdom and the ultimate destruction of his serpentine enemies. As I'm looking, it looks like at least one of those, um, Psalm 142, one of the following psalms, is a psalm that's concerned with David's flight from Saul and his time in the wilderness, a time of exile. So you have uh, you have the connection that you were drawing out, Trevor, but you also have the, uh, I think you have a, a link with the, the whole exilic setting of Psalm, 130, uh, psalm 137. Can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then you have uh, Psalms of David that are sung outside the land. At least one of them is sung outside the land when David's in flight. So the Psalms themselves originate in exile, at least some of them do. And they're appropriate song, not just for the restoration, but also for the time of, uh, the time of suffering and, and the time of exile. I want to go back to something that uh, Trevor said and, and draw out a more general point from it, uh, something he said a while back. Uh, about Psalm 109, uh, the idea that uh, what the psalmist is asking for is a purge of the people of God, taking a, rooting out the wicked. Uh, and it, uh, it seems to me that that suggests that the imprecations of the, of the Psalter function kind of like a, a church disciplinary action that they, uh, Paul, use, Paul quotes the death penalty texts of uh, Deuteronomy, when he, when he talks about uh, church discipline in 1 Corinthians, purge the wicked man from among you. So church discipline is a, is a, is a weeding out of the wicked. Um, the imprecatory psalms are a prayer that God do that. So they function as a kind of 
church discipline. And it occurs to me that uh, that that uh, points to one of the uh, effects of our uh, our failure to talk about or, or to pray these psalms that uh, the the church is not purged of the wicked, and we have the the church doesn't maintain its holiness and its purity. And it's partly because we don't appeal to the Lord to do what He's promised to do, which is to uh, intervene and to root out the wicked and to establish the righteous. And if we pray that He does that, then He's exercising His own discipline of the church uh, in response to our prayers. This is one of the pastoral applications of these prayers. This is why we need to incorporate them in our prayers in church. Is if the if we don't have these prayers, asking asking God to shame, confound the plans of the wicked, even those false brothers and uh, people, people can be very anxious about that uh, and frustrated and angry. Um, and I've noticed that as we've incorporated these petitions in our in our liturgy over the years, boy, over the last 15 years or so, that when I come to these, and I preached on Psalm 70 last week, two weeks ago, uh, I, I find that people relax. People will tell me afterwards, you know, this really helps. I don't need to be angry. I don't need to figure out what I need to do uh, with everything that's going on, for example, in Washington, D.C., I can trust God that he will be just and righteous, and I can ask him to deal with these things. Um, and, and that's really helpful for people uh, to, to have this release, to, to, to get their angst, to leave their angst in a sanctuary with God and know that, uh, you know, Psalm 73, uh, I know what their end's going to be, and I'm going to let God take care of that, and I'm going to find peace, I'm going to find shalom in resting and trusting in the Lord's justice. I think it's an important point to note that the Psalms are equal opportunity imprecations. They are not self-righteous prayers for judgment only upon those who are external enemies of Israel. In fact, you might might even find that the majority of the imprecatory Mm -hmm. Psalms are ordered toward those who are corrupting Israel's life from within. They are aimed at unholiness within the covenant community itself. Uh, We saw that in Psalm 58. It was judges, rulers, leaders of the people within Israel. We saw it in Psalm 109. These are personal enemies of David. You see it in Psalm 35, Psalm 69, uh, just off the top of my head. These are prayers for the judgment of God to cleanse Israel itself from the enemies within. Uh, And the logic is exactly the same uh, as what you pointed out as church discipline, Peter, in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, There, Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. This is holiness language. This is ritual cleansing language. This is ultimately temple language. This is cultic grammar to describe who the people of God ought to be and what they ought to do with those who are corrupting the holiness that is fitting for God's temple people. And it's exactly the same logic as what we've been talking about time and again in the imprecatory Psalms, a royal priestly removing of corruption from what ought to be a holy people, a royal priestly subduing of those who would tear down the temple kingdom 
that God is building up. Another feature of these imprecatory psalms is a posture towards the fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies, that they're not just passively awaited, um, but they are longed for and prayed for and desired. Um, And when we read scripture, we can often read these prophecies, for instance, at the end of the book of Jeremiah concerning the destruction of Babylon, and wonder what it would be like for people to receive that well. And one of the ways I think they should have received it is through prayer and calling for God's judgment to come and hastening that judgment, just in the same way as we pray that Christ's kingdom would come, that his will would be done, and that um, we pray that he would come. And here we're having a prayer that God's judgment that he has foretold, that his heart towards Babylon and the situation of his people languishing in um, exile, that people are aligning with that in these sorts of statements and prayers and songs. And part of the reason why we need to pray and sing in practically psalms and um, prayers is precisely that we might begin to become aligned to God's heart too. Mm. It's one thing I found interesting looking at the book of Jeremiah recently, how Jeremiah starts off very much wanting to pray for the people. But as time goes on, you see his posture towards the people increasingly aligning with God's own posture of wanting to judge them. Um, And he's calling that they would not be shown mercy. They need to be judged. And in the same way, I think, as we spend time with God's word and his prophecies and the statements of his will, our hearts will start to inhabit these prayers and these psalms in ways that they have not before. I think this um, question about retuning the hearts of the people of God when they sing these psalms is important. I mean, probably the worst possible response to the kind of evil and oppression that the psalmist is um, often uh, often uh, talking about is to feel nothing. I mean, if, if you feel nothing in the face of uh, wicked people oppressing the poor, the impoverished, the weak, um, then, wow, that's a problem. We ought to feel grief and rage and even outrage. Uh, but that outrage then has to be expressed along proper channels, not in our own personal vengeance or, or hatred against those who do such things, hatred expressed as aggressive behavior, but rather um, honesty before God uh, about how we feel. And that's one of the things that the psalmist is uh, helping us retune our hearts. As Calvin says, the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. Well, one part of the human soul or heart is this outrage that we feel. And it's perfectly appropriate for us to pray uh, these Psalms in order to give uh, righteous vent to our anger and to our outrage at the uh, kind of oppression that's being discussed here. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.